Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I'm interviewing Sam Johnson, an English adventurer that in 2011 quit his job, bought a camper van, and started touring. In 2017, he traded in his four wheels for two and decided to embark on a 35 country bike tour covering 52,000 kilometers while living on less than 10 pounds per day. As an avid climber, trekker and mountaineer, Sam is using the bicycle as a means of getting to new places and meeting people along the way. Currently in Colombia and around 900 days into his tour, Sam has ridden over 37,000 kilometers through 30 countries. You can find Sam on Facebook and Instagram at Pedaling the Globe and at his website at www.pedalingtheglobe.com. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Am I am I right? Is it 30 countries still, or is it uh, 31 now? Or? Uh, yeah, Colombia will be 32, so yeah, 32. Now. 32. Sam, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, yeah, like you said, uh, back in 2011, I kind of sold up everything. I had a house. Uh, you know the trappings of of modern mm-hmm. modern life: the house, the car, the job. And then in October, I just of 2011, I kind of woke up one day and just kind of had enough. Um, I was working 60, 70 hours a week, and um, for that, you know, by the end of the month, you, I hardly had any money left. Everything was going on, living um, expenses. So I decided, well, I'm going to just give it all up. And I did, I moved into a van, I've got a small van to begin with, uh, stayed in that one for a year, and then I upgraded to another van, stayed in that for mm-hmm. two years, traveling uh, Europe, still working as a climbing instructor as I was doing it. Uh, and then I sold that one, went to Australia, uh, bought another one, toured around Australia, again working, and uh, enjoyed traveling, always have done. I wanted to carry on traveling, but I just wanted a bit more of a challenge. I won't say that I mastered van life, but um, it was kind of getting a bit of the same again. I'm, like I said, I just wanted a bit more of a challenge. Okay. So I decided uh, I swapped four wheels for two and uh, see if I can cycle around the world. And that well, I set off in April 2017 uh, from my home in the UK. 
and yeah, two, two and a half, a bit more years later, and I'm sat here in Colombia talking to you. Sweet. Uh, what did you do before you sold everything when you had the house in the 60, 70 hour a week job? I was a climbing instructor, oh, okay. uh, rock climbing instructor and um, mountaineer guide back in the UK and throughout Europe. Um, I've been in love with climbing ever since I was a young, a young kid and kind of a hobby turned into a job and before you know it, you're 10 years down the line and I'm still doing it and it was great, you know, I did really enjoy it. Um, but it was just time for a bit of a change. Yeah. Like I said, I was working crazy hours every week and I would just get to the end of the month and be amazed at how little money I had. Everything just went on, you know, living, having a roof over my head and, you know, you have your, your TV, your internet, all your utility bills and what yeah. have you. And but like I said, by the end of the month, no money. And <laughs> it just seemed like if I were to live this life for the next 40 years, you know, I just wouldn't be happy. I was much happier getting rid of everything and just having a much more simple life. When I moved into the van, I literally had two rucksacks full of full of my belongings, everything else I sold off. Um, and then, yeah, I've never been happier, to be honest with you. Very cool. How much did your vans cost, like, as you went through them? Was it just, did you change vans because one uh, broke? Or? Yeah, no, the first one, I mean, I've never had a, a, a you know, a, a super new model van. Uh, yeah. so the first one, I think, was like 15 years old. And I could literally lie down in it, and my feet would touch the steering wheel, and you know my head would touch the touch the back. It was tiny, you know, but it had everything that I needed. Um, and I stayed in that one for a year, and that one was about two thousand pounds. Oh, that's not bad. No, it's not bad. And then I upgraded to a a kind of a Mercedes Sprinter, the long wheelbase, the real big one. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Again, it was old, you know. It was like six or seven years old. And it, it was just a van, and I completely redone the whole thing, you know, to my own spec, insulated it, done all the electric, plumbing, gas, and what have you in it. And that one was brilliant. It had, an, you know, an oven, a full-size fridge, had a garage in the back um, where I could put my bike and all my climbing stuff. You know, it was, it was for me, it was a dream van. It was, it was a luxury home on wheels, you know. And I can't, a part of me really regrets selling that one. Um, but like I said, I moved to Australia, so it kind of had to go. But, and then in Australia, I had a 4x4, four four, and yep. that one had a rooftop tent on top, um, so, oh, okay. I did, so I kind of slept on top of the vehicle, and every night I would just sleep on a beach, and it's just the most amazing way to wake up, you know, on a, on a, on a tent on top of the van overlooking the sea, yeah, it was amazing out there. And all, I mean, the, the last one I had, probably I spent about... Four thousand pound on that one on the four by four, and I sold it for exactly the same money two years later. <laughs> I never oh, really nice. lost anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I brought it for about two thousand pound, and I invested a lot of money, well, two thousand into it to do the, you know, upgrade some of the engine parts and and kit it all out with a rooftop tent and and what have you. Also, but yeah, by the end of it, I managed to get my money back, and and then yeah, flew home and. A bike. <laughs> did you find that when you upgraded vans and you got a bigger van, did you just all of a sudden start accumulating more stuff again? Like, is that kind uh, of the way it rolls? Yeah, I didn't really get too too much more stuff. It was more a case of just having more space. Um, obviously, when I had the real small van, you kind of—I <laughs> really had to be careful what I had. You know, if you leave one or two items out, the whole thing looks messy and it's mm-hmm. just a nightmare. With a bigger van, you know, you can have more stuff, but I could have more food so I could go away for longer. I had more storage in that kind of sense. And I did, 
I was able to carry more climbing stuff. I could take my bike as well. Um, right. So I did have slightly more possessions, but again, I mean, I didn't. I don't think I bought any new clothes or anything like that, you know. Uh, so I kind of kept everything pretty simple. And what part of England are you from? So I'm from the southeast, a town called Broadstairs. Um, from my old house, before I did get rid of it, I could see France. So I'm kind of oh wow right on the right on the the southeastern tip, quite close yeah. to Dover. Some people might know Dover, the uh, the main port down that way. Um, but yeah, from the southeast. What was your what was your family's reaction like when you decided to sell everything and buy a camper and move out? And how has that reaction and opinion changed over time? Um, to begin with, it was uh, it was a little bit difficult. Obviously, you know, telling you, I've I've set myself on this on this life, you know, where I had the house, I had the car, I had a good job, you know, and I was I was set for life if I stuck with it, you know. Um, okay. So then to, to tell them that, no, you know, I'm getting rid of everything, I'm going to go live in a van, it was a little bit difficult, especially for my mum to begin with. Um, the real change for it came, I think, when I lived in Australia, my mum came out and, um, and visited me in Australia. And I said to her, you know, excellent, come out, you know, come and see me, but I want you to live how I live. I want you to see how, yeah. how I live. Um, she came out for a month. Uh, stayed in the camper van with me. We camped, you know, and, and definitely wasn't for her. <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> her, it's not her style. But by the end of it, you know, she could, she understood a lot more about why I, I choose to live my life like I do. Um, okay. You know, like I said, you wake up on the beach, in Australia, you wake up the beach every morning. You know, there's dolphins, there's whales. You know, I go to sleep on the beach with the sunset, and I have no bills, you know, and anything like this. And she, and I think that was the turning point for her was, was to see the way, how happy that I was out there. Um, and now she, she's very much used to it. Even when I came back and said, you know, I was back home for, I think, two months before I set off between Australia and this trip. And, um, and when I told her, you know, there was very little reaction, really. I think it was almost expected that I was going to go up and do something else. And now with the family, it is, you know, it is easier now. They kind of, they understand. They've come around to this way of living, and they see that mm-hmm. you know that I'm happy. Um, for me, you know, having <laughs> having a secure job and money, uh, that's not for me. Um, you know, obviously, money always helps, but there's a whole world out there to go and explore. And I think yeah. now that they, you know, they've seen some of my trips. They've seen, especially this latest one on the bike. You know, they've seen where I've been and what I've experienced. They. Uh, they understand a lot more, I think, now. It's getting easier to convince them anyway. <laughs> That's very cool because, yeah, I think as they see how you as a person has cha- have changed on this trip from what you were when you worked 60, 70 hours a week sure. to now, they probably say, oh, yeah, he's happier, he's he's more interesting, he's got these things going on, that pa- his passion is there, you know? Uh, like I said, I mean, right now, I've never been happier. You know, life can certainly be tough at times. I could do things a bit easier, but, you know, I wake up somewhere different every morning. I go to bed somewhere different every night. The view is constantly changing, you know, and and you discover these most amazing places. And the bicycle is the ideal, you know, mode of transport to be able to see the world like this. It's, it's brilliant. What I would like to ask you then is, uh, what made you decide to pedal the globe? Like, what was the, what made you think that, okay, I'm going to get rid of the van and I'm going to get a bike and I'm going to do this by bicycle? Uh, so yeah, I was living in Australia. Um, 
and I was working in a vineyard, managing the vineyard, and uh, it's about 300 k south of Perth on the west coast. Uh, and I was just, we would deal with a lot of backpackers that would come to the vineyard to pick the grapes and what have you, and there were two guys that turned up, and they were riding bikes uh, around the world, and they just, you know, they had a working holiday visa for Australia, they were earning a little bit of money to carry on their trip, and I got talking to them and listening to their stories, and I just thought, wow, you know, it just blew me away some of the things they'd seen, some of the things they'd done, the places they'd been to. I thought, what an incredible way to travel the world. And then I was getting close to the time when my, my visa was running out, mm-hmm. end of 2016, um, and I, I knew I had to go home, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I said earlier, I knew I wanted to keep traveling. Um, and I decided basically on the way on the plane on the way home, I was like, okay, I think you know I've saved this money from working in Australia. Now I've got a bit of money behind me. If I'm ever going to try something like cycling in the world, uh, this is it. So basically, it was just off of talking to these these guys, listening to their crazy stories and the places they've been. And I just thought, you know what, I quite fancy giving that a go, <laughs> a go myself. And like I said, I flew back home. Two months later, I hadn't been on a bike since I was probably, you know, a teenager, 12, 13 years old. Um, Bought a bike, built it up, learned what I could learn about it, and just packed the bags and set off. Awesome. Um, Can I actually, can can I ask you a question? What is the difference between, I mean, I know what hiking is, but trekking, mountaineering, climbing, I'm assuming climbing means up like the face of rocks. What's trekking and mountaineering? How are those different? Okay, so so what I was basically, I started off as a rock climbing instructor, so that's basically vertical walls, you know, that you would use your, your hands and your feet for, you're tied in most of the time, and there's different styles of climbing, if you, if you want sport climbing and trail climbing, and uh, you know, um, and I would mainly work with the kids, it was all indoor walls to begin with, you know, why I was getting my qualifications, and then going outside as well, starting to take on adult groups as I got older, but my person, I mean, I've always been, you know, uh, very fond of climbing ever since I was very young, and then I started to get into mountaineering, um, and this is where my where my main passion is, is in mountaineering. Mountaineering basically is, is trying to climb to the top of a mountain, you don't necessarily need to use your hands the whole time, um, you know, most of it is walking, uh, it just tends to be a bit harder than your average trek, um, like I said, well, I used to take groups into the Alps, into the Dolomites, uh, Scotland, and places like this. Um, so yeah, the main difference of rock climbing is you use your hands, you know, most of the time. And then with mountaineering, I would uh, just kind of uh, walk people up the mountain and make sure they came back down again. Okay, cool. What about your bike? Tell us uh, what kind of bike it is. So the frame is a surly long haul trucker, and then I basically build it all up. Um, I could tell you what it was when I started, but most of the most of the parts aren't the same now. <laughs> it's a 26 inch wheel, uh, stand, standard V brakes. Uh, it's got 27 years. Um, yeah, and it's basically just been a solid workhorse. I mean, obviously over the you know almost three years now, it's uh, it's taken a bit of a beating. No doubt. Uh, but the frames the same, the handlebars are the same, the seats of Brooks saddle and that's still going strong um, you know a lot of it is the racks are still the same um, obviously the wheels the tires the brakes the you know the the, the uh, chain and what have you all that's been 
uh, changed multiple times. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, the main the main guts of it is the the Surrey long haul trucker, and I can't fault it at the moment. I mean, it's done getting on now for almost forty thousand kilometres. Nice. Yeah, it's a bit beaten up, but it's uh, there's no cracks in it. It's still going strong. Excellent. And um, your setup is more of a traditional touring style, or is it kind of a blend with bike packing? Yeah, more of a traditional, more of a traditional touring style. So I've got four patios, two on the front, two on the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two in the front really are for food. Uh, I can take about ten days of food. I mean, it's rare that I do take that amount. The only kind of times that I've done that, I've done it in Australia, crossing. Uh, the Nalaba, I took a lot of food with me there um, because there's not yeah. really many places you get it. And then the two bags on the bike, uh, two bags on the back, uh, they have basically the clothes. And then I have a duffel bag that sits on top of the rear rack as well. And that has kind of the camping gear in it. Um, and then I have a handlebar bag as well, which is just for the easy access stuff. And if I ever leave the bike somewhere, that's the bag Absolutely. that I take. It's got you know, the passport, money, and what have you in it. So I do come back in the bike, so I'm missing at least I get home. Yeah. I, uh, I actually loved one thing on your website I really, really liked was um, how you laid out um, your bike setup with the, you know, exact costs of every little thing. So people that are interested in this could actually look at it and say, oh, this is roughly what it would cost me, and this is why, you know? So I thought... Yeah, when I was looking into doing the bike, I struggled to find, you know, Exact costs. You can obviously buy a complete, you know, touring bike all set up for you. Certainly do the, you know, the complete package. Um, but I couldn't find an off-the-shelf model that really suited everything that I wanted. So I did decide to build it myself. And when I was looking at, you know, cost of doing it, I, I couldn't find this anywhere. Um, so I thought, well, you know, the idea of this trip, I, I was a complete newbie when I started, and I certainly wouldn't call myself a pro right now. I <laughs> know a little bit more than what I started. Um, but my idea really was just to share exactly how I do it, um, exactly kind of how it cost me to set the bike up and with the blogs that I post as well, it's all about what I learn and sometimes, you know, you, you do a, a crazy border crossing, you know, that, that, that you can't find any information about. So I like to share these things on the blog for if people want to go the same way and how easy it is with a bike and what have you. And, yeah, I enjoy sharing it all, and I think the more that the more that I can, the more people you know can follow along and 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 create their own little adventures with a little bit of help. Uh, I think it's all good. Let's talk about your trip. I, I kind of broke it down into a, a few different sections just so we can kind of focus on that. But Europe, Asia, South America. Um, tell us about your European leg of your tour. The European leg. So. Yeah, like I said, when I started, I literally had no idea. I've obviously got a bit of experience in camping and what have you, so I, I knew that side of things, but cycling, yeah, I wasn't cycle fit. Uh, I'd done a two-day uh, tour around kind of my area to make sure I kind of had everything that I needed, and then I fit off. Um, so I wasn't, you know, tour fit. I wasn't cycling fit at all. Um, but Europe, looking back now from everything else that I've done, Europe is uh, just the most ideal place to go cycle touring. You know, there are bike paths everywhere, you're off of the main road, it's calm, it's it's beautiful. I went basically from my house across the channel yeah. into France and then really I kind of just headed east. So I went through France, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany as far as Berlin 
And then I kind of turned south a little bit uh, through the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, um, Romania, uh, and Bulgaria. But most of the time, I was on, like I said, good cycle cycle paths. There are the Euro Velo. Was that following the Rhine or uh, through Germany? Yep, and then the Danube as well. Uh, they have some okay. really good, you know, long distance cycle paths in, in Europe that go through multiple countries. Um, I think I was on the Euro Velo Six for a while, which follows the Danube. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just it was just easy. It was a nice introduction. To, to bike touring for me. Um, obviously, I okay. try and wild camp every night to keep the cost down. So this Europe proved quite easy for that. Um, I could always tuck myself away somewhere. Uh, and I remember when I set up, it was fairly cold. But just as I kind of got to Slovakia, we were hitting the spring, and I would cycle for days, and the air was full of blossom, and it was just beautiful going through there. The further east you go through Europe, things start to change yep. a bit. Uh, once you get into Hungary, uh, Romania and Bulgaria, there are cycle paths, um, but you do tend to either go off-road a bit more and you go a lot of, in Hungary for me, it was a lot of sandy tracks through the, through the forest, which was proved super hard. <laughs> At the time for me, it was super hard. Now I look back on it and over the last, well, compared to the last uh, month out here, I'd, I'd been back in Hungary any day. Um, and Romania, <laughs> Romania, Bulgaria, that's where I started to get the first um, experiences of bad drivers. You know, you'd be on the roads and they'd okay. so quick, you know. Um, but that put me in good stead for once I got a bit further on in the trip. Uh, I was a bit more used to it. But yeah, for me, um, Europe is just, yeah, it's a, it's a really nice, for the most part, easy place to cycle. And I really enjoyed it. I took three months to get across, so I took my time. Um, and then I, from Bulgaria, went into Turkey and ended my European leg at Istanbul and crossed oh, into cool. Asia. When I think of it like that, if you're brand new to touring, starting in Europe and if you're going to head, you know, east, it's a great way to do it because it kind of slowly builds you into this mindset and all the skills and the strategies you need along the way. You can slowly accumulate them. Exactly. Rather than being like dumped into Thailand and having crazy drivers. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, if I had started kind of in South America or, or in some of the countries in Asia, I don't know how long I would have lasted. It would have just probably freaked me out. It's, uh, it, Europe was a nice slow introduction to it all, you know, and, and the good thing for me as well, um, I do speak a bit of French and a bit of Spanish now that I'm out here. Okay. Um, but with Europe, you know, you can generally always find someone that speaks English. So on that aspect as well, it was really quite nice. Here in South America, a lot of the countries that I've been through, people don't speak English. You know, so no, huh? when you're learning, like, it, like I said, if I've been, if I come straight to South America with and I have no Spanish, then I would have struggled. I think it's a crazy driver, it's a bad road. There's no cycle, mm -hmm. <laughs> cycle lanes anywhere, you know, and it's all very mountainous and off-road. Um, I would have struggled. So yeah, Europe was a, it was a nice, nice three-month introduction. And by the time I got to Turkey, I was feeling, you know, more confident with the bike, more confident of, of how to spot a wild camp spot that was safe and and what have you. And uh, yeah, they, those three months they put me in good stead for the rest of the trip for sure. 
Excellent. And so from a, uh, from Turkey, what the, where did you head across Asia? What was your route? Uh, yeah, I went across central Turkey and then uh, I came up towards the Black Sea and I crossed into Georgia from there, across the south of Georgia and then into Azerbaijan. My original plan was to go, to carry on going down into Iran. Um, but at the, t- at the time, I, I tried three different embassies throughout Turkey. And uh, I couldn't get a visa for Iran. No, it's um, it's almost impossible. But, yeah, I mean, for I think for British American, it's pretty hard to get a visa. Um, so I ended up changing my plan. I went uh, so into Azerbaijan, and then I crossed the Caspian Sea uh, with a ferry, and that put me in Kazakhstan. And I went from across Kazakhstan into Tajikistan, and then from there I had uh, my first kind of hiccup to the trip as it were uh, oh. I was, found myself in Bishkek the capital and I was a bit stuck uh, going north was the wrong way would take me eventually into Russia and, and the cold weather mm-hmm. uh, carry on going east meant a uh, visa for China and the only way I could get a visa for China would be if I flew home I'd have to apply for it in person in the London embassy uh, going uh. south would eventually take me into countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan where again I'd really struggled to get a visa and obviously uh, going west is back the way I came so I ended up flying from Bishkek to New Delhi. India was the first real kind of wow country it just went you know for for an English guy India is crazy you know there's is so many people everywhere and the culture it, it's fascinating but everywhere you look there is something crazy going on, you know, absolutely just mad people everywhere um, and 24-7 noise and it's crazy India. It's probably, I love the country, but mm-hmm. I don't think I would ever go back there so I could put it. <laughs> Really, huh? Just, I mean, yeah, I mean, the roads are too dangerous. They're, 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 there are no rules on the roads whatsoever. You know, you'd have cars. If it's easier for the driver to go the wrong, down, wrong way down the motorway, if it's faster, then they do that. Uh, and they, the trucks do the same, but they do it at you know, 80, 90 kilometers an hour in the hard shoulder coming straight at you. And cows wandering across the road, there's camels, people riding camels down, mopeds, thousands and thousands of mopeds going in every direction. It's just chaos. I remember when I came into Agra, which is where the uh, Taj Mahal is, and it took me about four hours on a bicycle just to get through the city center. It's grid. It was absolutely gridlocked. And that was on a bicycle. Normally, you know, you can weave your way around and, and you're pretty fast. But no, nah, it was absolute gridlock. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating country. The cities like Varanasi are, are really beautiful. And, you know, the place will blow your mind. But for cycle touring, yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, I've heard that, I've heard further north, you know, kind of in the Himalayas and there. Kashmir region, these are more quieter and, and uh, a bit a bit more uh, mellow. But uh, for me, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy eye-opening experience. That's for sure. How long did you spend in India? In India, I was there about uh, just under four weeks before I, I crossed into Nepal. Oh, okay, okay. And that was from. Uh... So I came in at New Delhi. Um, and then I kind of, again, just went east. So the first real stop would have been Agra, the, the city mm-hmm. of Agra. Um, and then on to Varanasi, which is a very, one of the most holy cities in, in India. 
Right. And it's, uh, again, an absolutely fascinating place. It's, it's, it's madness. And then uh, I kind of from there went north and just went into into Nepal and carried on. After India, I was I was in need of a bit of time out from the chaos. You know, I think I don't think it would be much of an overestimate to say that there are 700, 800 odd mobile phones in India with my picture on them. You know, I mean, every <laughs> every day you get. 30, 40, 50 people wanting selfies, you know, which is great. It's, it's, you know, but it's first thing in the morning you wake up. I would have people around my tent at half past four, five o'clock in the morning. Um, and then be, when I put the tent up at night, they'd be there till, you know, midnight, lighting fires around the tent, sitting, chatting, which is great. It's brilliant, but you never have kind of a, that, that time to yourself, you know, and people would come past on scooters and kind of cut me up. Just uh, take a photo with me. They just want a photo. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's great, but it just gets a bit overwhelming for me. After a month, I was kind of in need of a bit of peace, a bit of a, a bit of, you know, away from the crowds and just getting back into nature again. So yeah, I crossed into Nepal and basically headed straight to the to the Himalayas and and Christmas 2017, I spent up on the Annapurna circuit. Oh, nice! Like Christmas and New Year up there, which was. Absolutely beautiful. You know, I took the bike up there and I managed to ride most of the circuit. Uh, there's a lot of pushing, there's some stairs involved. And, but that was, uh, that after India, it was, uh, yeah, a beautiful, a, a beautiful Christmas up there. Had the snow in England. We don't really get much snow around yeah, Christmas. Um, so it was nice to have a white Christmas. It was cold. Like I said, I camped, camped most nights and the nights would get down to minus 18, minus 19. Um, which makes life a bit hard, you know, everything can freeze up overnight, all your water and what have you, but it's well worth it up there. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Did you have like two, three sleeping bags or what in that temperature? Mm, no, I just have the one. I have a, basically it's a three season sleeping okay. bag, but I also have a, I have a, a silk liner as well, which kind of bumps it up to four seasons close enough. Okay. Uh, and then I would, in places like Layers. the pool, I would just wear everything yeah. every, every item of clothing that i had you know <laughs> i would wear everything <laughs> everything to bed and once you're in you know and you're all tucked up it's not so bad I, yeah. I learned pretty quick that all you have to do is just lay really still if it, as soon as you move then cold air will come into the sleeping bag you just lay still and and you'll be okay ah good to know and um the annapurna circuit on a on a surly long-haul trucker is is it do it's doable i guess right i mean must... <laughs> yeah i kind of i was the closest city to, to that truck is pokara and i asked around uh, there's lots of guiding companies that do these trips um and i asked around and they said people will go up there on uh, on mountain bikes you know they might have just a full suspension mountain bike yeah and wide nice wide tires disc brakes you know and they might just have a small rucksack and they stay in the lodges the whole way around so they don't carry too much stuff with them. Uh, when I said that I was going on a touring bike, everyone pretty much said I wouldn't make it. Um, so I was fully expecting not to make it. I'd said to myself that I'd give it a go, and I'd just go as far as I can. And if I have to turn around, turn around then i turn around. My aim is to go up there for Christmas. And like I said, if I couldn't go any higher, if the altitude got to me or, or it got too steep to ride, then I would just turn around and come back. But it is doable. <laughs> it's certainly doable. Uh, there is uh, there's a, almost a road uh, that goes all the way up to a town of Manang, 
and that is about, if I remember rightly, somewhere around about 3,600 meters. Okay. Um, and so there are four by fours that will get up there in the good weather, they can get up there. So you can follow that. It's still very steep at times. Uh -huh. um, the road is missing in a lot of places, um, and you kind of have to, you know, carry your bike across old landslides and what have you. But um, it is possible to get up to there, and uh, for that bit, I rode most of the way. Uh, there is one or two sets of, of stairs. You can go on the road, or you can occasionally you can switch across the river that you follow, uh -huh. um, and that's more of a trekking path. Because sometimes I'd go on this side as well, and then from Manang to the top. Um, yeah, it's just a trekking route, um, but again, it is rideable. There are sections where the rocks are too big, and you're going to have to pick the bike up and carry it over. Right. Um, the higher I got, it was a case of taking the panniers off, walking the panniers over, coming back to the bike, you know, maybe doing two or three trips. Um, my bike and bags with the food and everything started off at around 40 kilos. So okay. it was a fair way to try and get up there. Um, obviously, water was quite easy to find. There's lots of very thin rivers, and near the top there was snow. So it was pretty easy on the water side. But I try to stay away from the lodges and you know, and eating in, in in the lodges. So I took everything with me and wild camped the whole way. And yeah, it's not. I I would estimate the whole way around the whole loop. Um, I cycled probably between eighty and eighty-five percent of it. Oh, that's right. That's good. Yeah, some sections are just too steep. I mean, for me, they're just too steep. For that. Yeah. With a heavy bike, you, you just roll backwards. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard of people doing it by bike, but maybe you're the first person to do it on yeah, a surly I, or a touring bike <laughs> that yeah, I know of. I couldn't, I couldn't find any information about anyone being up there on a touring bike before. I mean, I'm sure someone has, um, but I couldn't find any information. Like I said, the guiding company... In Pokhara, they kind of just laughed at me when I said I was going to go up there. But, uh, but yeah, I reckon I was able to ride the majority of it. But near the top, on the last day, it was very, very cold. Yeah. And there was lots of ice and snow, so it made riding pretty difficult on on, on two-inch tyres. <laughs> and, you know, they weren't especially new tyres either. So, uh, yeah. And then going down, going down was great. I started over lots and lots of you know really big rocks and boulders going down uh, but eventually you go down far enough and the track widens out and you have you know almost four thousand meters of descent it's brilliant nice. <laughs> yeah i've heard of some epic descents in nepal oh there for me like you know i've spent a lot of time in the mountains before they're still my my favorite environment you know it's so peaceful up there it's so quiet and it's just so beautiful and the Himalayas, uh, you know, the crown jewel. They're just beautiful. Yeah. Let's talk about Southeast Asia, because I assume after that you went back into India towards Myanmar and onwards? Yep, back through that way, uh, and then into Thailand. Uh, Thailand, for me, out of all the Southeast, uh, Southeast Asian countries, Thailand is probably my favorite and, and the easiest. Uh, it's got a really good cycle network, Thailand. Um, the, the drivers are pretty respectful as well. Um, they're used to seeing cyclists. And it's just sunny. It's my first country that I kind of really went to where, you know, there was lots of rainforests and uh, it was just beautiful. I followed, I came in from Myanmar and followed the border up. 
From May Sod up towards May Hong San and yeah, going up, going up for that loop and then coming back down to uh, Chiang Mai, uh, Chiang Rai, and then I crossed into Laos. Laos just blew me away. Northern Laos. It's probably one of my favorite places of the whole trip. Oh, really? It's very hard to narrow down. You know, beautiful place for the landscape and for riding. Northern Laos is unbelievably stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, it, it, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings up there. It's just all these misty mountains and steep hills. It's not the easiest of riding, obviously, but it's it's so so worth all the effort. You know, and the people are so friendly. Never had I had I seen people that in these little villages in the in the rainforest. You know, they have next to nothing, but they offer you everything. You know, time and time and time again. I'd go to a village and I'd get there in the evening and it would take two or three minutes before someone would come, you know, and want to help me. They'd, they'd want me to stay in their house, you know, and they'd share their food with me. And the first few times, you know, this happened to me, started happening through Turkey and, and these places, but the first few times things like this happened to me in each, in each different country, I'd always try and offer them something, you know, normally money. Yeah. Uh, but they, I can't remember a single person of the whole trip ever taking money from me. They just wanted to help. And Northern Laos, it was just incredible, you know, every single village. Um, yeah, Laos is one of my, my all-time favorites for sure. Was, Did you go down to Luang Prabang? I didn't go that far down. Oh, no. too bad. Uh, I my, only went, I love it. I crossed into Vietnam about halfway down um, and then headed to the coast. Yeah, I like I said, Laos was beautiful, and I really did enjoy it. But it has a, as you probably know, it has a really uh, big problem with the landmines uh, in in Laos. There's yeah. something like 18, 18 million of them left over. Yeah, it's insane, um, and it makes wild camping <laughs> really scary. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had three weeks going through there. You know, wild camping every night in the jungle, and there are signs everywhere that you never see. You know, don't go off the path and stay on the path and, and uh, after three weeks of after three weeks of kind of wild camping amongst all of this I was you know a bit stressed out so I was like okay Vietnam let's go into Vietnam and, and I hadn't seen the coast you know I hadn't seen an ocean since I'd uh, set off from the UK so I was desperate to right. get back to the sea and I grew up next to the sea swimming most days in the sea so I really missed the ocean um, so yeah headed to Vietnam and then followed the coast of Vietnam down Vietnam, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy, you know, crazy country. Again, loads of people. There must be three mopeds to every person out there. The whole place runs on mopeds, and it's amazing what you can you can fit on a moped when you when you try. You know, you're talking That's true. five people. You're talking construction equipment. And yeah, everything gets goes on a moped out there. Um, it's a little bit mad. But again, very beautiful. It's got a very beautiful coastline as well. Uh, it suffers a little bit uh, from rubbish that comes in off of the ocean and lands on their beaches, so it can be a bit dirty. But uh, it is phenomenally beautiful. And then as, as far down as Ho Chi Minh uh, City and then into Cambodia. Um, Cambodia would probably 
Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. The toughest country is Why is that? Uh, yeah, I... I came in and there's a motorway that goes all the way across Cambodia. And if you stick on that, you know, then, yeah, it wouldn't be too bad. But I wanted to go go off the motorway and I wanted to explore. So I tried to find this uh, back way into Siam Rep. And then, long story short. I love this story, by the way. I read this blog post. Uh, Please Uh, share it. It was probably out of everything that I've done on this trip. It was one of only a handful of moments where I've kind of stood still and gone, ah. I might have pushed things a bit too far this time. Okay. I got lost in the jungle, and the path that I was meant to be following on my map was just a single path. But in reality, once you get into the jungle, there are dozens. It's a warren of paths, and they are literally there's no signs. They are just you know paths that go through the jungle. And the one that I was meant to be following was 200k, and it was dotted with tiny little settlements, villages. So I didn't take much food or water, kind of predicting you know I'd get to a village within. You know, a few hours each day, no problem. Ended up getting ridiculously lost. It rained, I was there in rainy season and the bike constantly just kept getting bogged down in the mud. Uh, it hit 46 degrees in the day and something like 30, 38 uh, degrees, 39 degrees in the shade. Yeah, as soon as, especially in the jungle. Yeah, it gets. Uh, I mean, it was just so hot and humid and I ran out of food and water and I was completely lost. I ended up having to leave the bike behind because I had no energy left and try and retrace my uh, my footsteps back out and eventually I found a little river but it was more it was just brown water, muddy water <laughs> and I literally just stripped off and just lay in that until it got dark <laughs> and uh, it was just, a, I was so hot, I was getting to the point where I was losing my vision and I was struggling to stand up and I just needed to cool down but it's impossible, <laughs> everywhere is just Blazing hot in that place, uh, so I ended up laying in the river until dark and feeling a little bit better as, it, as the sun went down. Managed to collect the bike and think like 10 or 12 hours later, <laughs> early next morning, I, I managed to retrace my steps to the village that I started on. But it was certainly a learning curve, that's for sure. Where did you leave the bike when you went off on your own and left the bike? I left it stuck in the mud. It oh yeah. Got bogged, oh, it got bogged down to probably halfway up the panniers. And that's not not an exaggeration, you know. The, the mud is just, it's so deep and thick that time and time and time and time again it will get bogged down and, you know, you build your energy up, build your energy up and you push the bike and you free it 
and you manage to kind of roll it across some vegetation and it stops from sinking down again. A few minutes later, it would sink again. And the last time it did it, I was just out of energy, completely out of energy. I just couldn't move the bike. So I literally just took one water bottle, um, which had a little bit of water off it. And my plan was to walk back to the village, which would have been about 20, 22k back to the village. And Damn. Just, just to get water, you know. But like I said, I found this river and was able to, to cool down. I couldn't drink the water, but I could cool down. And I started to feel better just laying in the water. Um, the downside was I got covered in leeches <laughs> when I stood up. Oh, I, I can imagine. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize, didn't realize when I was laying in it, but it was a, it's a small price to pay. And then, yeah, once I felt better, I just went back and was made, I was able to get the bike back out of the mud and uh, just took my time. It, I, I think it took me close to 10 hours to cover those 20k. Going back, just pushing the bike, stopping, you know, and resting and pushing and, yeah. Did you get sick at all after this? From that, do you know, I, I vividly remember laying in that river and saying to myself, if I get sick from this, it was well worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually... I never got sick from that from that uh, from that experience. The only time I've actually done pretty well, <laughs> touch wood. Uh, the only time I ever actually been sick on this was in Nepal, um, and strangely enough, it was the one time that I treated myself to like a restaurant meal. Ah. You know, I constantly throughout Southeast Asia and uh, Central Asia, really, I would always eat street food. You know, and yeah, far cheaper, and it's much nicer in my opinion. But I'd just come back down off the Annapurna circuit in the pool. And that's, and I thought, okay, you know, I've done it. It's time to celebrate. I've been living on, you know, handfuls of pasta. <laughs> so I had to go out for a nice meal, you know, I'll blow the budget and just celebrate what I've done. And yeah, that was the only time I've ever been sick on the trip. <laughs> wow. And after CM Reap, did you head up towards Thailand? Is that back into the south of Thailand? And... Yeah, back into Thailand to Bangkok. Um, and then south, uh, following, uh, following the east coast down. Uh, again, super beautiful, it's nice for the bicycle, into Malaysia, um, Malaysia hands down has to be my favourite country for food. Uh, Isn't food. it? <laughs> oh, it's just, it's phenomenal, I love it. I don't know if you know this, I, I lived there for seven years. They, I, so you know what I mean, for a bike tour, for a bike tour as well, it's brilliant, you know, you just go to the, almost like a buffet on the side of the road, mm-hmm. and they, they give you a plate piled with rice, and you just go along, and you, you know, you take what you want, all these different dishes on it, and it comes to like two dollars, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing. So what was your, what was your favorite, the Chinese, Indian, or Malay food? Uh, the Malay, I think. The Malay? Yeah. Was there I anything in particular? I don't know now, um, not off the top of my head, no. I love the, oh, I mean, mine, mine was Indian, so I mean, for me, it was roti chanai, banana leaf, like, those are all... The, the banana leaves are good. Yeah. They're real good. Um, but yeah, I really, for, for food, Malaysia was, yeah, has to be one of my favorites, for sure. Um, I started off going down the west coast, but it, it wasn't so nice down there. I had a, I had a vision, you know, of, of beaches and being able to camp on the beaches and what have you, and, but in reality, it's just all mud and mangroves and you can never actually get that, that close to the sea that's right you gotta um, go on the east yeah so i went down to as far as kuala lumpur which kuala lumpur is probably i'm not a great fan of the cities but kuala lumpur is probably one of my favorite cities i've ever been to mm-hmm. um I, I really like kuala lumpur and then from there i headed over to the east coast and yeah it's much quieter down the east coast there are 
perfectly due to Gambon. Yeah, I enjoyed Malaysia once I, I got over onto the East Coast. And then from there into Singapore, I literally spent 48 hours in Singapore. You never should spend too much time there. <laughs> no, it's so expensive, especially after coming from, you know, from places like Malaysia, you cross into Singapore and wow, it's, uh, it's super expensive and it, it, it's hard to bike tour there, I think, for the way that I like to do, you know, mm -hmm. wild camping and what have you. They're, they're very strict about that kind of thing. So I was there for 48 hours, I ended up just passing the night, slept under a bush in the park. Um, just to avoid putting my tent up. Wow, you actually wild camped in Singapore as well. That's amazing. Yeah, well, yes. Uh, without the tent, I literally just went to a park, and there was a section of the park that did, you know that was quite dark. Uh, wheeled the bike next to a tree, and mm -hmm. she just pulled my sleeping bag out out of the pannier and laid it under the bush and just slept under there for the night. So I didn't have the tent or anything like that. I was kind of prepared that if I heard a noise, you know, I could. I could be up and gone within a minute or two. So yeah, that's how I passed the night in Singapore. And then yeah, I got the boat from Singapore to Indonesia. The first island I stopped off at was Batam. Uh, I was there for I think, two days just cycling across Batam uh, to get the ferry from Batam to Java. So it's a much, much longer ferry. I think that one was saying like 36 hours to get across. And then cycled, yeah, across Indonesia, Indonesia, Java, crazy. <laughs> yeah, by the end of Java, I was kind of done with Indonesia. Just the chaos, the 24, it's like India, you know. It's, it's mental. Constant honking of horns. And, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning is exactly the same as 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's loud, it's chaotic, and you always sleep. I, you know, I was struggling to sleep, find places to sleep a lot because there's a lot of rice fields and and fish farms and things like this and it's very hard to put a tent up so I'd sleep meters from the road, you know, just behind a bush or in a, behind an old hut, what have you. And it was just so noisy and loud. Okay. And I, you, you, I slept purely through exhaustion, you know. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a peaceful night, that's for sure. But again, you know, I followed the, the kind of northern coastline and it's it's stunningly beautiful, you know, it's all through fish farms, there's no roads, you just follow these little tracks through the fish farms and through the rice fields, and then it will come to another village that, you know, no cars can get there, people are just on mopeds and bicycles, and I had one experience in one village, you know, there were kids, five, six years old, and they hadn't seen white skin before, you know, mm -hmm. and just to have these, these moments, we had an English lesson at the end of a a bamboo uh, pier one night with these kids and you know some just really nice genuine traveling experiences you know along there um, but yeah I was pretty glad once I got the boat over to um, Bali Bali yeah it's a bit chaotic but if you stay outside of Denpasar uh, it's not it's bad yeah. beautiful Bali you know it's, it is very big and quieter not much quieter but quieter <laughs> so I enjoyed Bali quite a lot uh, from there I flew to Australia Okay. I landed in Perth. I landed in Perth, um, yeah. which was nice to be kind of back on, if not home soil, then as close as you know, as close as it can be. Uh, and then from Perth, I kind of headed south. So I went down back through the area that I used to work and stopped off to see some people, carrying along the south coast, Albany, Denmark, 
as far as Esperance and then into the town of Norseman, which is where the the start of the Nullarbor is, the Nullarbor kind of desert, if you like. Okay. Uh, which is 1,200 odd kilometers of just straight, almost completely straight roads that follow the coast. You know, it's stunningly beautiful. It's, it's what most people would think of Australia outback to be, you know, it's very beautiful along there. And especially once you cross uh, into South Australia, the state of South Australia, it's, the road goes right next to the ocean and it's beautiful, you know, I'd cycle along and the whales would be jumping. Yeah, it was just. I think what's hard to imagine with Australia is that, you know, usually like these really rural, deserted roads where you're going forever through like emptiness are in the middle of countries and the Nullivore is one of these such places, isn't it? And it's right on the coast. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Australia is just vast, you know, it's absolutely massive. And yeah, I think the population is tiny compared to, you know, the land as it were. Yeah. Even the East Coast, yes, is very built up and it's, you know, it's very cosmopolitan. There's a lot of big cities. That's where the majority of the population tend to live. The West Coast is a lot quieter. And then once you start heading inland, you know, <laughs> you can go for hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers at a time without ever seeing anyone. That's you wild. You go through the deserts, you know, you could it'd be pretty crazy to go that way but it's doable and you could be on your own for days if not weeks out there there's sun for everyone in australia you know it's, it's, it's beautiful whether you want the desert the beach the mountains you know it's got everything it's it's beautiful tasmania is just stunning and then, yeah it's a it's a beautiful country i ended up going basically as far as adelaide and then down into melbourne and then from melbourne i flew to new zealand Mm-hmm. Um, uh, flew to Christchurch in the South Island and done a loop of both islands. New Zealand for me, I had, I, I'd never been before to New Zealand and I had this picture in my head of, you know, the outdoors, everyone's very outdoorsy and it's, it's easy to explore the country, go where you want. Yeah. In reality, not so much. Uh, in my opinion, New Zealand drivers are the worst <laughs> kind of, uh, really? worst drivers outside of, you know, uh, third world countries, if you like, in less developed countries, they are really bad on the mountain roads, you know, and it was just a, a, lots of close calls. The, 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 uh, the cycling there on the mountain roads was unnecessarily scary <laughs> because of the drivers. But saying that, wow, it's a stunning country. Um, yeah. Around Mount Cook and, and this area is absolutely beautiful. Once you get out to Queenstown in South Island, absolutely stunning um, and then I followed the west coast up and I think <laughs> for the entire week I was on the west coast so it rained constantly oh no um, and it would oh, you know I'd end up having to spend six days sleeping in a wet sleeping bag inside a wet tent and wet clothes every day and but still it's so beautiful along there that yeah I didn't really mind too much crossed into the north island made and made my way up um, to Auckland and then flew from there to South America. Oh, um, sweet. And that's kind of the continent where I'm on now. I'm assuming you flew to Argentina. Uh, yes. Well, I flew into um, uh, Chile, Santiago. Okay. And then I had a connecting flight from Santiago down to Punta Arenas. Um, and then I started basically up from there. I started a little bit about five days later than I wanted to. Unfortunately, the airline lost everything. They lost my bike, they lost my bag, they lost everything. So when I turned up in Santiago, 
Um, yeah, I had nothing <laughs> apart from what I was wearing. Uh, so I ended up, well, they told me that it would be in Punta Arenas after my connection flight, so I flew down to, to Punta Arenas and there, nothing was there. So I ended up sleeping for, I think, four days. Punta Arenas is a very small airport. Um, I ended up sleeping for four days uh, under a set of stairs inside the airport, <laughs> waiting for my bags to turn up. Um, and I just stayed there until everything turned up. Luckily, it did. Uh, so I was able to get on my way eventually. And then from Punta Arenas, yeah, I just headed north, really, uh, through Patagonia, which is stunning, up the Caratao Australia, through uh, Chile, which is uh, probably one of the toughest routes. The Caratao Australia for me was probably one of the hardest. Most people, I've since learned, most people tend to do it from north to south because they will have the winds coming from behind. Um, obviously, I was going south to north, so um, I would have, there were days leaving from Punta Arenas on the way to the Caritas Australia where the winds would be in excess of 100 kilometers an hour, wow. you know, straight at you, and it's impossible to cycle, so I'd end up just lying in kind of a, it's very barren, there's nothing down there, there's no way to get out of the wind, so I'd end up just laying in a little ditch on the side of the road through the day, and then I'd cycle at night, uh, the night the wind dies right down and you're able to cycle a lot further. Okay. Um, and it was the first kind of night riding that I'd done. And it's great. I loved it. You know, your whole world is just what is within your head torch, you know, and it's quiet. There's no one on the road and you're in these vast landscapes. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful riding at night. I actually really enjoyed it. I kind of imagine that the Carretera Austral has such an amazing night sky because there's just nothing around to f- saturate it, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Along there, I mean... This part of uh, where the Caritas is, this part of Chile is very, you know, it's very remote. It's kind of cut off from, um, you know, most of the, most of Chile. Um, the Caritas del proper, you, you need to take it's three ferries altogether, possibly four, okay. uh, to get across the the lakes. So it's very cut off this region down here. But I like it at night. It is just. Yeah, phenomenal. The night skies are beautiful. The road you go through, you know, these most amazing roads that go through the mountains. There's glaciers that come down to these okay. pristine lakes. You can drink right from the rivers. And camping is easy. You quick. pick a time you want to stop, look left or right, and just go set up your tent. You know, there's no one out there. It's, it's a very beautiful part of the world down there. It's tough. It's definitely tough. Like, the road is... Is Ripio like really bad washboard for uh-huh. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers? You know, uh-huh. you are bouncing along the whole way. Um, it's very slow going for me anyway. It's very yeah, slow I can imagine. With a heavy bike. Um, with a bike packing setup, I think it would be amazing, especially going north to south and you have the wind behind you. Um, but yeah, it's very beautiful along there. Very, very beautiful. Um, and then I crossed back over into Argentina. Okay. And followed Argentina up, uh, kind of along the border with Chile, if you like, along the mountains up there, um, and then crossed back into Chile again, over into the Atacama Desert. Uh, this was done in the Atacama, is really nice. The path going up and over the mountains was the hardest mountain pass I think I've ever done. The winds were just phenomenal. Super really, strong. yeah? Day, day and night, they just never stopped. Uh, I've in excess of 80 kilometers an hour, you know, and it would gust to well over 100. So most of the time I was pushing the bike and it's a 3,000 meter climb to go up and over. 
um, and then back down again. And it took me far longer than than what I was anticipating. And you couldn't even ride it up. You had to, you're like pushing, huh? I pushed from well, the first day I was able to ride, but the higher you go, the the, the worse the winds got. Right. And for the last two days, I pretty much pushed the bike the whole way. There was the last day of actually going over the path at the very top. The last day, I think I was doing, I think my final day in eight hours of pushing, I think I covered 17 kilometers. It was ridiculously slow. You know, you could do, I could do 10 or 12 meters before you have to, before I had to stop. The wind was just phenomenal, you know, and you'd hunch down next to the bike to try and get out of the wind, and it's barren, there's, there's no way to really get out of the wind. Um, and drop down into the Atacama after that, which, again, talking about nights, guys, if there's anywhere in the world that is amazing, it's the Atacama Desert. It is phenomenal at night down there. Um, very popular for the stargazing and people heading out that way. Um, and Did you then, go to the Salt Sea? Not in this region, I didn't know. Uh, once I crossed into um, Bolivia, okay, I came basically from uh, the Atacama. I retraced my steps back up into the mountain to reclimb back over the path. This time the wind was behind me, so it right. was so day. And I crossed into Bolivia there. Uh, the crossing into Bolivia is almost uh, 5,000 meters at that point, and crossing into Bolivia. The, the, the first four or five days going um, through this, the, the south of Bolivia is just beautiful, but very remote. There's no roads. They're just um, uh, dirt tracks that go through. And you have the, the odd salt lake here and there, and flamingos up there. And it was just amazing. These volcanoes all around you. And wow. yeah, it's very, again, very beautiful. Um, and then from there, I, I made it into uni, and it's just past uni that the. Um, Saladuni, the, the famous salt lake, um, is, and I've spent three days riding across the salt lake, just taking my time, camping on the salt lake. It's a, a, a weird experience to be in such an environment that's so vastly different to what I've been in before. You know, everywhere you look, in any direction, it's just white. <laughs> it's very disorientating, yeah. and, and it's, it's madness, you know, and it's freezing cold. It's very, very cold, so you, you don't, you know, you don't really feel the sun, but wow, it's super strong out there. You know, you'd suffer without a decent sunglasses and, okay. you know, you'd really suffer out there. But, um, it's, it, again, it's, it's, it's a stunning part of the world. It's a very strange landscape to be cycling in. And did you get yourself a naked picture while you were there? I did, I have. Yeah. I've never posted that one. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's uh, Instagram friendly, that one. But uh, yes, you do the classic poses out there. And uh, yeah, and well, luckily I was kind of there when uh, Mirror Effect, um, it, it has to, the salt basically has to have water on it. Right. It has to have that mirror effect. Um, so you, you know, you can make some really cool photos um, once it's like that. Uh, and then, yeah, I reckon from the Saladi Uni to now, here in Colombia, I've just followed through the mountain chain basically oh, wow. uh, through Bolivia and Peru. That was a very tough two months, you know. I, through Bolivia, I rarely, rarely went below four thousand meters. Um, no I kidding, would, huh? I, I would occasionally dip down, like into a valley, and then end the night back up on top again. But for a good month, I was following through, uh, you know, these valleys and and these hill climbs and. Rarely did I drop below 4,000. Um, and same really in Peru. 
I kind of followed the mountains again, again, it's my, my favorite environment. Uh, I'd heard the coast wasn't so nice in Peru. So. And mildly dangerous, I heard too, sometimes. Yeah, well, eventually I did go to the coast and almost instantly regretted that it's not nice. <laughs> the coast of Peru, um, it's very busy. The Pan American is very busy. Um, like you said, very dangerous along there as well. There's lots of, uh, you know, muggings and what have you, and it's very, very hard to camp along there as well without being scared, especially if you're me. <laughs> and then crossed into Ecuador. Let's talk about it. And then Ecuador is where things kind of all went wrong. <laughs> how how long were you in Ecuador before things started happening? You know, with the uh, the current political about situation. Twenty four hours. <laughs> oh, seriously? Okay, wow. Yeah, literally. It would be, I'd have been hard pressed to time it any worse. <laughs> and you had a whole country to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was right at the start. Yep. And I couldn't go back because they blocked the border. So. <laughs> oh, crap. So where did you get stuck? Like, um... So I made it to my pronunciation of this city is rubbish, but Loja, Loja, the city of Lo, Loja. Yeah, I, that's not the same way to pronounce it, I'm absolutely sure. But anyway, I made it to there and I was, I was okay. Uh, and then I went to leave. I don't have a mobile phone or anything, so I, I do, if I don't have Wi-Fi, I don't have a connection to the okay. outside world, as it were. So I had no news about what was going on. So I left. Um, the first day that I tried to leave, all the taxis had blocked every exit out of the city. Oh, wow. So I couldn't get past. They wouldn't let me pass. Uh, so I had to come back. I went the next day, and everything was clear. No problem. You know, I could get out. The taxis had gone. And I made it about... I'd say about 350k into the Amazon along the roads there before. So you were heading, you were heading east. Yeah, I was kind of heading east. I went up over the mountains and then dipped down into the Amazon. Okay. Heading east and then taking a northerly route uh, along the eastern side of uh, Ecuador, as it were. Um, my plan was to go all the way through and then climb back out to uh, Quito. But uh, yeah, I made it about 300k and then that's when uh, I hit the first roadblock and that's when things went a little bit wrong. And uh, you just managed to hold up, hold up in a little town or a little village of some sort. There was a little village just before the roadblock. I tried, I tried to go through the roadblock, and they were perfectly fine. Uh, but they just were absolutely convinced that I wasn't going to get through. Um, they weren't going to let me through. They were nice enough. They were just not going to let me through. Okay. So I ended up waiting five days in the village. It's a village of maybe forty people, uh, all farmers. You know, so it was. Uh, it wasn't anything to do there, as it were. I spent five days in that village, basically, and then I had to make a decision. I was running out of food and water. There was one little shop there, but um, with all the protests that were going in on in Ecuador and all the roadblocks throughout the country, there was no delivery getting to the village. So, you know, the food was running out in the village for everyone. So I had to make a decision, really. So I decided to turn back and retrace my steps and see how far I could get back. I managed to get about 200k back before I found a road uh, that went over the mountains and would take me to a city called Cuenca, which oh, yeah. is up in the mountains. But there were two or three roadblocks between me and Cuenca. I managed to get through the first two okay, pretty much fine. They let me through. We had a chat, wanted to know where I was going, and you know, and after a little chat, they they let me through, no problem. The third one, they were friendly enough. They let me through. Um, I managed maybe 20 meters uh, through and just as I was trying to cycle up the hill something hit the side of my bike uh, so I stopped just to look to see what it was and before I knew it three guys had jumped out of the jungle they had 
machetes and they'd slice at the bags on on my bike. And yeah, before you know it, they're, you know, hands are going through panniers. They're they're taking stuff from the bags and you're trying to hold on to the valuable bits and you know you're, you're straddling your bike. You're kind of off balance. People are pulling you around. I'm basically trying to grab anything that they're grabbing. <laughs> so if they're grabbing if they're grabbing something out of the back pannier, it depends what it is. You know, I mean. If you want my dirty T-shirt, then crack on. But you know, if it's if it's my you know my tablet or my you know power banks or something like that, I was I was grabbing them as well. You know, and it was kind of a little bit of a tussle. But luckily, the protesters that were at the barricade that I just passed through saw what was going on. They started throwing stones. I ended up scaring them off, and yeah, they got away with a bit of of my stuff. Uh, nothing you know super valuable. Nothing that yeah. I can't do without. Uh, my bags are a bit cut up from where they cut them with the machetes and okay. things like that. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't uh, wasn't the best part of my trip. That's for sure. I'm pretty scary, but. Uh, yeah, like it could, it could have been a lot worse, that's for sure. Did they threaten you with the machetes at all? No, I mean, they only really used them once. I mean, now I look back on it, I think what they've done is they threw, they, they threw a rock at the bike to begin with, which is what I felt hit the back of the bike. Yeah. Um, so I stopped just to see what it was. And literally, I looked down at my feet, you know, to see, see where it was. By the time I looked up, they were around the bike, you know, because okay. they'd, they'd come out. And the one guy basically came out with the machete and just swung the machete and it sliced across the the bags. And that was the real, that was the only time they really kind of threatened me with a machete, if you like. You know, I mean, they had them in their hands, but they weren't waving them or holding them to me or anything. But, uh, Jeez, huh? you know, I, that was the only time that they kind of used it, if you like. But three against one, you know, I'm not kind of the biggest guy. And when they've got big machetes, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, take what you want, you know. <laughs> How long were you holed up in Cuenca for? Um, I was only there for about a day. By the time I got to Cuenca, um, it, from the jungle to climb back up again was almost two and a half thousand meters, and um, it was constantly raining those the last three or four days. So uh, visibility was very, very low. The, the clouds were very low. It took me a long time to get up and over. Um, but by the time I reached Cuenca, basically I slept there one night. I woke up in the morning and. That's when I heard that the protesters had struck a deal with the government. Okay. They'd, they'd reversed all these um, these subsidiaries on the on the petrol and what have you. So the demonstrations come to an end, and and I set off. And the roadblocks are still there, but they're being cleared, and no one was stopping me. No one was throwing rocks at me again, and you know, so I could cycle. Um, the only downside is they burn a lot of the uh, the car tires, if you like, you know. And inside those car and truck tires, they have that wire mesh. Right. And it's it's like thin as hair, this stuff, you know. And it's everywhere. And it's the only thing that has ever got through my tires. They're Schwabel Marathon tires. And uh, I probably was suffering three or four punctures a day just from this stuff. Where they'd be burning them on the side of the road to form the barricade, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd come along and just push them to the side of the road, which is you know, where you cycle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was constantly getting punctures all the way to Quito from these things. But yeah, I mean, the route I took was direct from Cuenca to, to Quito through the mountains. It wasn't, you know, my, my first plan. I would have preferred the jungle, and it was very mountainous against it. Lots of big climbs, lots of moon valleys, dipping in and out again. Uh, not as high as what it had been in Peru and uh, Bolivia, but, you know, still, still 2,000, 2,500 meter climbs. 
Yeah, yeah. back down again. It's still very beautiful, but the roads are very busy. And I think where a lot of the lorries and what have you had been stuck for eight days, there was a sudden surge to, to get going, you know, so the roads were very busy day and night. And yeah, I arrived in, in Quito and everything was peaceful and moved off and crossed into Colombia, yeah, yesterday. Are you in Pasto or? I'm just, I'm literally, if I stand up from where I am, I'm sat on a rooftop. If I'm standing from where I am, I can look into Ecuador. So I'm still right on the border in Quintalia. Okay. I think it's called. Oh, yeah, I see it. I'm looking at yeah, a map now. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm basically, there's a catheter cyclist here. And I'm sat on the rooftop now. And literally, I'm looking into Ecuador. So, yeah, I'm right on the border still. Okay. Um, so you're staying at, what kind of place are you staying at? So this is a catheter cyclist. Um, throughout South America, there, there's quite a lot of these. They range really, I mean the one that I'm in now is someone's house, um, okay. he's a cyclist and he just opens his house for the cyclists to stay at for as long as they need. Uh, some places they will charge you, um, places like here are free. Um, so, you know, I'm on the rooftop, I can set my tent up up here, um, you know, have showers and what have you, it'll be nice and safe. And there throughout South America there's dozens and dozens of cassadistic Oh really? Yeah? Um, yeah, like I said, sometimes you pay for them, sometimes you don't, sometimes it's donation, sometimes you do a little bit of work, you know, and they're great places, especially when you're on the tight budget. <laughs> All right, so now that you're in Colombia, are you going to be going back into the mountain ranges and uh, avoiding the coast, or? Um, I'm a little bit done with it now. I mean, for, probably for the next few hundred kilometers, I'll stay in the mountains, and then I'll drop back down again. Um, I've been told the coast isn't so safe in Colombia, um, so I'll probably stay away from there. Okay. Um, and I'll head to Medellin, I think, and then go up. I still have to try and work out uh, how I'm going to get past the Darien Gap, the bit of land that separates yep, yep. Panama and Colombia. Um, I want to take. I really want to avoid flying. I don't like flying with a bike, and my whole aim is to try and stay on, you know, on the ground as much as possible. I had a guy, Davide Travelli, and he uh, he took it with like locally made cutout canoes and stuff, and it seemed to be a fairly affordable option. This is what I was looking at. Yeah, apparently leaves from Turbo or tu Turbo or right next to Panama. So yeah, I've got a three, two or three weeks to work out how I'm going to get across there, and then keep going, really keep going up to Alaska and and then back down across Canada. Yeah. All right, so I wanted to talk to you about one other thing. You wrote a really cool article, and it was uh, 18 things you've learned from two years in the saddle. Let's go through these just for shits and giggles. First one, the world is not as dangerous as the media would have you believe. A hundred percent. I mean, this has probably been my, one of the main takeaways I've had from mm -hmm. this trip. All you've got to do is go to your phone, open your news app, and it's so depressing. It's so... It, paints this picture of the world that is so bad everyone is out to get you and, and it's dangerous stay at home stay in your bubble stay where you're safe yeah. you know and it's just so not true you know don't get me wrong i'm not naive enough to think that you know there aren't bad people in the world of course there are there are far more people in the world that that want to help you that are generally kind um yeah. uh, don't mean you any harm um through turkey through india through southeast asia like i spoke about I've lost count of the amount of times people would invite me into the house. I was uh, in Turkey, I was given the keys to a house uh, in Istanbul, and it was a beautiful home, an absolutely beautiful home. I'd met the guy for maybe five minutes, and he gives me the keys to his house. And wow. 
big house in Istanbul full of widescreen TVs. It's beautiful, you know. I was there on my own for like eight hours before he turned up home, you know, and I had the whole place to myself. And I, I could have robbed him blind, you know, but they don't think yeah. like this. They just want to help, you know, and that doesn't happen in in places like Europe. You know, we're, we're too scared of strangers. Uh, yeah. I, I can't speak for America. and I haven't been this way yet, but in Europe, we're, we're too scared of strangers. You know, everyone... Everyone is dangerous, you know, whereas you get into Asia, it's the complete opposite. The world is so super friendly and people really do just want to help you out. So yeah, most definitely, bad news is, is because it sells the newspapers and yeah. it makes you click on it, you know what I mean? My mother today posted something on Facebook and it was like an article that something says like, don't let your kids walk to school or take the bus alone. Uh child abductions are at an all-time high and i'm thinking you know what they really aren't like i've read articles on this statistically nothing's worse now it's just everybody sensationalizes every bad thing you know exactly and it's technology that has changed us a bit you know these people that you know the kidnappings and things like this these people have always existed it's just nowadays we have you know the technology where the news travels so quickly you know and we're inundated with it or we hear about people going missing in far off countries that we didn't hear about 10, 15, 20 years mm -hmm. ago, you know, because of social media, because of how quick news travels, and all of a sudden, it just seems like there's, there's, there's more of these people. There's not, you know, I mean, these things have always existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like I said, yeah, the world is a, really is a very, very beautiful, kind place. All right, there's number one. Let's go number two, Curse of the Zipper. <laughs> Yes, well, I'm looking at my sleeping bag now. It was soaking wet and it's been drying. And yes, I stand by my uh, stand by my story. <laughs> the curse of the zipper. You can get about as close to humanly, you know, comfortable as possible in your sleeping bag, and then that zipper will just dig into your neck, dig into your shoulder. You gaffer tape it, it will still get to you every time. Maybe it's just my sleeping bag, but I'm pretty sure people <laughs> who agree with me. You can get super, super comfy, but that, that zipper will get you. Yeah, yeah, my experience, you're right. N number three, money doesn't equal happiness. It certainly doesn't. Like I said right at the start, you know, I'm happier now with next to, oh, I'm not going to say next to no money, but with very, very little money than when I was when I had a steady income. I had a nice house, nice car, good job, you know, I had widescreen TV and, you know, I had everything that I thought I needed, you know, that, that money could provide me. But now that I literally have, you know, what I can fit on my bike, I have three sets of clothes and, you know, a tent and, and I'm happier here, you know, I have, I don't owe a penny to anybody in the world. Yeah. I wake up every morning, I go where I want to go, you know, I, I, I wake up somewhere different, I go to bed somewhere different. It, I don't need money to live this life, so you, you do need money, you just don't need a lot of money, you know, yeah. especially if you do, like I do, you know, I camp, I camp every night, I don't pay for accommodation, I buy my food and I cook for myself, so it's a very cheap way to explore the world, and for me at least, it makes me very happy. Alright, when was the last time you paid for accommodation? Oish. <laughs> um, maybe in Chile. Okay. Uh, I paid for a campsite, which was a couple of dollars. Does that count as accommodation? <laughs> uh, I would say like hotels, motels, that kind oh, okay. of thing. Oh, uh, I would probably say at the end of uh, the Caratel Strau, when I crossed back into Argentina, I treated myself, I think, for one night there. Oh, okay. I think, if I'm right. Good man. <laughs> that was the last time I had a hotel. 
But uh, honestly, like I would pick my tent over over a four star hotel any time. Yeah. It's peaceful. It's quiet. Like I said, you wake up to amazing views. The places that I've woken up to, you know, you don't even get those views at five star hotels. You know, places I can imagine camping on a deserted beach in Australia. And it's just you can't buy that, you know. Um, number four, taking things for granted. Again. One of, another thing that this trip has really taught me, I was so used to when I had a house, you know, if you want to drink a water, you turn the tap on and you can drink the water that comes right. out of the tap. But when I charge my phone, there's a plug on the side, on the wall, I just put it in. I don't even think about where, how this is happening, how I'm able to do this. Once those things are taken away from you, you just realize how valuable those are, how lucky we are to be able to have safe, clean drinking water comes straight to our taps and our houses. How fortunate we are to be able to plug into electric, affordable electricity, you know? Um, and all of these things, I didn't realize how much I just took for granted. Like I said, when they're taken away from you, it's sort of like, oh wow, you know? Like when you only have two liters of water and you have no shop and you have no rivers for, you know, 48 hours, mm-hmm. you're really careful with that water, you know? <laughs> All right, number five, having road rules actually makes sense. Yeah, see, India. Again, UK, you know, sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it can be frustrating, you know, you you come across a stop sign and you can see that there's no one coming, you know, you're like, oh, I can see why they put a stop sign here, I don't need to stop, blah, blah, blah. And then you go and cycle in somewhere like India where red lights are, are constantly ignored. There is zero point of having traffic lights in India. You know, no one pays any attention to them. Yeah. You know, no one pays attention to stop signs, uh, indications, or anything like that. And I think once I finished Southeast Asia, I was kind of like, yeah, you know what? Road rules, they make sense. They're actually, <laughs> they're actually quite useful. <laughs> All right, good. Number six, The se- what is the secret to existence? The secret to existence. Uh, three things. Shelter, warmth, and food. To, to survive, what this, what this trip has taught me, to survive, that's all you need. Now, obviously, it's nice to have other things. Other things will make you more comfortable. But to survive, you just need shelter, you need to be able to get warm, and you need food. Food, drink, I can't do food. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, having such a basic lifestyle, you know, it's uh, coming from what I had, even from the, the professional house, car, to tent, you know, it's it's humbling to realize that I really don't need much in life, you know, I don't need Netflix, I don't need, you know, big TV, I don't need all these different things. Yes, they are nice, you know, these things mm-hmm. will make life more comfortable and, and what have you, but really when you cut it down, the secret, all you need, you need somewhere to get warm, you know, a shelter over your head and some, some food in your belly and life's good. Sweet. All right. Number seven, you don't need to be connected to the world 24-7. I'm assuming this has to do with you not having a cell phone. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, as I said earlier, I don't have a phone. So unless I have Wi-Fi like I do now, then I can't I can't communicate with anyone. And I don't miss it at all, to be honest with you. It's just great. It's nice talking to people, but it's so nice not to be on Facebook, on Instagram every day. You know, like, yeah. I would go a week, two weeks without going online and without feeling like I need to connect with anyone, you know. It just means that I'm able to appreciate where I am uh, right now, you know, to be in the moment, to not be distracted, to, to speak to the local people, to explore the local area without, yeah, without these uh, modern day distractions. It's nice. Number eight, man will never create anything as beautiful as nature can. 
<laughs> again, they're one, yeah, pretty straightforward. I mean, she, you know, humans have created some beautiful things. There's some beautiful artwork. There's some beautiful, you know, architecture out there and what have you. But, you know, you stand on a deserted beach in Australia, you go to the Himalayas, you know, you go to Patagonia, you go to the jungles of Malaysia, you know, these places are just drawingly beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. and nature. Uh, for me, nature will enhance down every time. It, it creates the most stunning landscape. If you're, if you're willing to get out there and go and find them, it's a beautiful world. Uh, number nine, the bicycle may be or may just be the best method of travel, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I've traveled on and off now for 10 years different ways, you know, backpacking, backpacking and in the vans and what have you. And for me, the bicycle, I think, wins. You know, it's this perfect mix between not being too fast and not being too slow. You know, and especially traveling solo like I do, you can go at your own pace. You stop mm-hmm. and start the bicycle, take you to places where a car won't go. You know, if you get a, if you're a backpacker, let's say, and there's nothing wrong with this, but if you're a backpacker and you need to get a coach from one to the next city, and that distance could be four, five, six hundred kilometers, you know, you'll cover that in a few hours, you know, half a day, a day, or what have you. For a bike, that's, you know, seven days, six, seven, eight days. And, those areas in between are so fascinating, you know, and so interesting. These, these would be the areas that don't really see much in the way of, of tourism, you know. They, they just see the coaches whiz past. True, yeah. I, I mean, I think anybody that listens to this podcast would probably agree with you on that one. Uh, number 10, and this one too, the most miserable people on earth are those who work in immigration. Oh, yeah. I don't get it. I I use New Zealand as an example. I'm not picking on New Zealand. We're using New Zealand for, for example. I had such a rough ride going through immigration in New Zealand. Like, I got off the plane before I'd even got the baggage. Someone was, someone had picked me out of the, picked me out of the queue, and you know, I was asking me all these questions or having, and they're so miserable. I mean, I don't know why. These are the first people, travelers, foreigners, visitors to a country, meet. Or you know, these are these. They should be the they should you know they should be the welcoming representation of the country you know they they, they should be all smart I just don't understand it just seems that you have to be very miserable to work in immigration <laughs> that's just my take I don't think I've ever seen a happy immigration officer maybe they maybe they're just a little bit annoyed that you're going on holiday and they're not I don't know all right number eleven gaffer tape baby wipes and cable ties will fix any bike related problem most certainly will I don't think there's been a uh, the mechanical issue, I haven't fixed the gaffer tape. Um, the holes on the side of my bag from those encounters with those guys in the jungle with the machete, they're all fixed up thanks to gaffer tape. Alright, it's not perfect, yeah, but yeah. it will do the job. Cable ties, again, it got me out of trouble plenty of times with mechanical issues on the bike. Um, yeah, if you, if you have those three things, you're going to get yourself out of, out of most, uh, most bad spots. <laughs> Good stuff. Number twelve, famously famous. Who's the most famous person in the world? Who's the most famous? David Beckham, hands down. It's amazing how many people in this world know David Beckham. I, uh, I remember being in India, very village in India, and as soon as you, I said that, oh no, I'm from England. Ah, oh, David Beckham, David Beckham. It's the first <laughs> thing they would say in India, in Indonesia, you know, parts of here in South America. It's crazy. That this guy is known from the cities to the smallest villages. You know, these villages haven't got electric or, or Wi-Fi, yet they know who David Beckham is. Yeah, hands down, he must be the most famous person in the world, I'm sure. Australian generosity, number 13. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Australia, I mean, like I said, I have a fondness for Australia. I love them, but 
the, the story I tell with this problem, people are like this, I remember going down a very bad road, it was very hot, and I was trying to find the coastline, all washboard, so it's very bumpy. And I'm going along, I've been probably on the bike eight, nine hours, and this car comes up behind me, and uh, you know, normally when a car pull up along the side, you know, they often use water or some fruit or anything like this. Um, but yeah, this car pulls up beside me, and he just rolls down the window, and before I can even say anything, he just looks at me and gone, I don't know what you're doing out here, but before you die, drink this beer. <laughs> it was the, you know, the best thing <laughs> I've heard. And Australians, they're very generous, they're very uh, generous, but it will never give you water, it will always be beer. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure ambulances have a beer fridge in them out there. All right, number 14, I agree with you 100%. I think I have the same argument about Canada, but the NHS is a wonderful institution. Well, yeah, I mean, this has brought hope to me in places like, um, you know, Cambodia and, and else. You know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd go through these villages and time and time again you see these uh, these people that have been affected by the landmines, you know, that have limbs missing or what have you, and they have no access to free healthcare out there, you know. And any, any kind of, I mean, for you and I, you know, let's say you, you break your leg, you know, it, it, that's a bad thing, you know. It's going to mean you're not going to be able to go to work for a while. You know, you, you, you're going to have to take some time off, but you'll be able to go and see a, a doctor about it. You know, if someone in rural Cambodia breaks their leg, well, it's broken, <laughs> you know, and it will be deformed. And I saw so many people, like I said, in Cambodia that clearly have, you know, suffered a lot, you know, and can really do with seeing a doctor, you know, and being able to be treated. And there's just no chance out there. It's either A, far too expensive, you know, or B, it just simply doesn't exist. There, There is no access to medical care out there. So I hear a story uh, back home of some guy complaining that he had to wait six hours at the NHS after our, you know, our, our healthcare system, he had to wait six hours to be seen by a doctor, and he was complaining, and it made the news and what have you. And I just thought, I know people, you know, that would <laughs> that would absolutely give anything to see a doctor, and would gladly wait six hours, you know. Yeah. And you just, yeah, it just kind of brings it home when when you're in places like this, just how lucky we are. I think when we have it, we get used to it and we forget how lucky we are for it. And then we just complain about things that aren't good enough for our, our new expectations, you know. Uh, number 15, you just got to be there, man. You know, you can take hundreds of photos, you can take hours of footage, and it will give you a good representation, you know, of what, what it was like, you know, when you show your friends and what have you. But it really doesn't take the place of being there for yourself, you know. And I think for me, this was really brought home when I was in Kazakhstan. And I would camp in the, in the desert and at night, it was so quiet. And in the morning, you'd have these sunrises that would light up the whole horizon. These amazing colors, so beautiful. And I remember taking such a nice sunrise. And like, no, you don't understand how beautiful it is. You know, a picture, it doesn't doesn't show you the silence, it doesn't show you what you were smelling, how you were feeling. So yeah, for me, there really is no substitute for being there for yourself. Photos, they're great for getting the inspiration, you know, to find out where you're going to go, but it beats going for yourself. All right, I agree, man. Um, let's go through the last three. I, I know the connection's kind of poor. I'm going to edit as much as I can and fix it, but uh, number 16, recycling. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a kind of a hard one for me, this, you know, I think we can recycle all that we want in places like, you know, Europe, 
we're going to recycle all the tuna cans, all the newspapers that we want to. Not really going to make a difference until countries like India, Indonesia, Bolivia, Peru, you know, until these make a change. Um, these countries, well, I have to say, these countries are filthy. Um, I know it's not their fault, you know. Uh, if you don't have the infrastructure to be able to get rid of rubbish, then of course it's just going to be chucked on the ground, you know. Mm -hmm. In India, it goes on to the, the banks of the river Ganges, that's where all the rubbish goes, and they wait until the rainy season and it washes it all away. And where does it go? You know, eventually end up in the sea. And, but this is how they get rid of the rubbish, you know. So I'm not saying we should stop recycling, of course we shouldn't, you know, we should always do our best uh, to recycle. Well, what I'm saying, unfortunately for me, it doesn't seem like there will ever be uh, a big change until these countries are able to, to do something, you know, put the infrastructure in and, and, and start cleaning these ones up. Very interesting perspective, yeah. Um, number 17, two left. Those with the least tend to give the most. Yeah, again, like in India, I remember going to one village and very, very poor, you know, no electricity, no, electricity, no running water. And two families literally had an argument over who was going to put me up that night, you know. And then eventually, after about 20 minutes, you know, I was, I don't know what's going on, I can't really speak the language. Eventually, I was taken to one house, and then for the next hour, people kept coming to the house to bring me things if I needed something. You know, that someone would bring me some fruit, someone would bring me some water, someone would bring me some blankets. They all just wanted to help, and these yeah. people had nothing, you know, they had basic basically nothing, very little possessions, but it was so important for them to be able to, to give me something to, to help me, um, you know, and it just amazes me that, that those those in the world that have really next to nothing tend to be the kindest, you know, they, they just have big hearts and, and they really want to help, and mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's really nice. I'm not saying, you know, if you have loads of money and a nice car and house, you're not a nice person, it's not the case, but yeah, it just seems that people understand, people just want to be kind and just want to help, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Well said. And the last one, over-planning is overrated. Definitely. I, when I started, I was, I was very much a planner, you know, I'd go to bed in my tent every night, I'd look at the map and I'd go, this is where I'm going to get to tomorrow, this is, you know, I'm going to camp here, that means in a week's time I'm going to be here, that means in a month's time I'm going to make this country, you know, I was very much that way. Lasted probably until, yeah, the start of Turkey. It just, for me, it really? doesn't work out. I, I have much more fun when I wake up in the morning, I wake up, I make coffee, I sit down, I enjoy an hour, you know, or two, just in the morning with the sun coming up, I pack the tent away, I look at the map, I know roughly which way I go, and I just ride off. And, I don't know where I'm going to sleep every night, you know, sometimes it's hard to find somewhere, sometimes it's not. And now for me, I try not to plan too much. The only time that I would do a little bit of planning, you know, is if there's something coming up, like, as I was saying earlier, this, this crossing between the Darien Gap, between Colombia and Panama, this, you know, I need to plan a bit for this. So I look into that and visa lengths, you know, you don't want to overrun your visa by just being, you know, dawdling along the whole time. But, uh, yeah, for me, like I said, I used to be super worried about uh, about where I was going to sleep, make sure I get here, make sure I get there. And now, well, you know, I just wake up and if I do 20 kilometers in a day, then okay, I've done 20 kilometers. If I do 210, then I've done 210. You know, I don't have a fixed amount anymore. I just get up, see how I feel, and just enjoy it. And 
I find if you if if you are more flexible like that, some great things happen, you know. Especially if you're me, you get lost a lot of the time as well. So yeah. <laughs> you know, you just you just go with it and and just explore, and you never know what's going to happen. You never know what the next person you meet is going to offer. You know, I can't go check out this way. You might bump into another cycle tour, you know, that's going the opposite direction, and he tells you about a place, and you go and check that out. And so yeah, for me, not too much planning if I can help it. I prefer just to wake up and roll on. Awesome. Sam, I mean, I could talk to you so much longer. I had other questions I wanted to ask you about your three big changes in 2018 and stuff, but I think that was a really great way to end it is just uh, to say the lack of planning, right? Planning is overrated. So what's next for you? Where are you heading from from Colombia after you get across uh, the Darien Gap? So I'll be going up uh, into Panama, then Costa Rica, uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, um, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, Mexico, America, Alaska, and then back into Canada, um, across Canada, around the Great Lakes, and down to New York. And then from New York, I will take a flight back to somewhere in Europe. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Probably somewhere in Spain. And then I'll go up through Spain, Portugal, France, um, and then back home. I'm oh. guessing, right, going on from not too much planning, but if I had to guess, I would say probably around nine to 10 months more. Wow, awesome. I look forward to following it all, really do. Sam, you take care of yourself and uh, have a great ride through Colombia. Thank you very much. I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. I just want to thank Sam for taking the time to record this interview with me. It's been a challenge, uh, especially considering he was stuck in Ecuador for a little while. And we recorded this episode just after he arrived in Colombia. So the quality is not the greatest. I think just the the internet connection in this small town was not so strong, but I'm happy that we had the chance to record it anyways, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to get to know Chris Bennett. He's a 60-year-old Canadian that moved to New Zealand and has has taken part in quite a few different ultra-endurance biking events. And in the episode, we're going to talk about the things he's learned and tips and tricks and ways to prepare for these events, how to race as effectively as possible, and why he loves racing these kinds of events. So until then, thanks for listening and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.